you go into a restaurant and you ask a waitress, waitress, uh, could you tell me which bourbon you have? As soon as she says Jack Daniels, you, you know that she Get doesn't know what she's talking about. Jack Daniels is advertised on tank tops and trucker hats. Episode nine of Milk and Bourbon. Um, I've got with me my my own father. I convinced him to come on with me. Um, he said that he would do that as long as he got to choose the book. So he got to choose the book, and it turned out to be really good, as you'll see momentarily. But before we do that, I wanted to introduce him. Um, Travis Travis Rogers from Kentucky, twenty eight years in the military, four of them being in the Air Force. 24 of them being as a JAG officer in the Army, so essentially a lawyer for the Army. Um, I'm going to allow him some time to introduce himself better than I certainly can. Uh, I'm the dad, yeah, got that. And um, I, uh, as he said, I'm in the Army and working as a judge advocate. Um, I, I picked this um, book with, with his approval, of course, for a couple of reasons. As he said, uh, it has to do with Kentucky and me being from Kentucky, all of us being from Kentucky. Um, there's a link there, and especially since I left Kentucky right after I graduated high school. I, I enlisted uh, when I was 18 uh, and left home and haven't really been back since. So any connection to home that I can I can grab onto, I, I try to do that. So uh, he, he left a little bit out, though. Um, I, I got to select the book and the bourbon was the deal, but as you'll find out a little bit later, he, he pulled a bait and switch on me on the bourbon. So, I reneged, yeah. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah, so um, just to as a better introduction, we figured that maybe uh, two stories or a story from from your time, your 24 years um, doing this job, I'm sure you've seen a lot of interesting things. Um, we wanted to give you the opportunity to relate some of those stories. All right. There, there are a couple stories that uh, especially my younger boys enjoy hearing me tell. And, and so I'll, I'll tell one or both of those <clears throat> And I'll tell you, everything that I'm going to say uh, was public record. I, I'm not disclosing any uh, any uh, uh, information that was given to me in confidence. Behaving like a true lawyer. That's right. Uh, and I'll also, just to make it even more um, generic, uh, not use any names or locations. Um, but I think the one that that um, at least the boys like hearing most is... is, is um, one part tragic and one part comic. Um, tragic in the circumstances, uh, comic in the execution of the story. So uh, right after the invasion of Iraq, uh, when I got back from that deployment, uh, there was another individual who was also in the Army uh, who came back, and he was having, he was having some, some difficulties with, with what he saw uh, and, and what he did and, and uh, some things that had happened to, to friends of his, I guess. Um, those difficulties got the better of him one day when he was on his way to PT, PT is physical training. Um, he had decided, um, sadly, that he was going to kill himself. Uh, and he had a pistol that he kept in the glove box of his truck, um, but he didn't have any ammunition. So he, he drove, and, and he was struggling. Uh, and again, this is all public record, but he was struggling with whether this was the right thing to do, whether that would end his pain, whether it would cause more pain to others. He was just struggling the whole way. Finally got to a place um, far from the installation, 
where he stopped to buy uh, ammunition um, and went back out to his truck and decided, you know, he would find another place to do it. Um, as he's driving, he's putting, and again, this is tragic, he's putting the firearm in his mouth and trying to find uh, what some would, I guess, try to call the courage to pull the trigger, and he couldn't do it. So after several hundred miles of this, and he was several hundred miles away, mm-hmm. he decided, um, since I don't have the courage to do this myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit suicide by cop. So here's what he decided to do, and, and here's where the tragic circumstances start to turn a little bit comic. And I can only say that it's comic because it turns out, well, he lived through this. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. So he went to this small town, um, and he says, and he finds a bank. And he goes into this bank, and he's got his firearm, and he's got a bag, uh, and he goes in, and he fires a couple of rounds um, in the ceiling. There are two or three customers present, two or three tellers. It's not a big bank, small bank. Um, says this is a you know this is a holdup. Give me all your money. He gets the money, uh, which, as I recall, was maybe three or four thousand dollars. Uh, and he goes out to the parking lot and he stands there in the parking lot. In one hand, he's holding this bag of money. In the other hand, he's holding this firearm and he has steeled himself for the inevitable. He's, so he's just waiting at this point. He's waiting. He's, gonna, he's not going to drop his gun. He's going to keep that gun in hand to make those cops shoot him. Sure enough, he starts to hear sirens and he tells himself, this is it. This is when it's going to happen. And the sirens are coming down the road, getting closer, getting louder, getting louder. Pass him right by. <laughs> keep going right by. <laughs> But then he starts to hear another insider. Okay, okay. here's the one. Here's the one. This one's going to stop. Getting louder, getting louder. Keeps going right past him. Mm. And he waits. And he waits for probably 10 minutes, and nobody ever shows up. Apparently, there are only two banks in the town, and they got the wrong bank. <laughs> so, uh, again, he's, lots of things swirling in his mind. He's not thinking straight, but he ultimately decides, I'm going to go to the police department because he drove past it on the way to the bank. I'm just going to go there, and I'll end it right there in the parking lot. And he goes there, um, and he, you know, he grabs the bag, and, and he's walking into the police department, and he knocks on the window of uh, the lady that's running the front desk, um, and knocks on the window, and she says, not now, honey, not now, honey, we're busy, we're busy. And there's people running out of the police department on his left and right, just taking off, grabbing their gear, getting their keys, and taking off, and the lady's saying, we can't help you, honey, we're busy. So he sits down in the waiting room to <laughs> patiently wait to be helped. <laughs> Um, and finally, uh, you know, gets up and knocks on the window again and says, I'm the guy you're looking for. And at that point, she, her eyes finally <clears throat> open, yeah. and I guess the sheriff or the chief of police or whoever was still there, and she calls him up there real quickly. Uh, and that's when he realizes, just as the sheriff walks in, that he forgot to bring his gun. Uh, he has the bag of money, but because he doesn't have his gun, there's no shootout, what he had hoped for. Um, so that's, he lived through that. Now, because this is right after OIF-1, right after the invasion of Iraq, there's this patriotic fervor that's sweeping the nation, uh, blanketing the nation. Um, this small town felt bad for this guy. They felt bad that one of the nation's heroes had had such uh, emotional things happening to him that he did this. So everybody in this town was behind him. Uh, we support you. That's right, including the president of the bank. The president of the bank wanted to testify on his behalf. Mm. So I was able to to work a, a pretty sweet deal. And when I say pretty sweet deal, they had him in pretrial confinement after that. And this is a federal crime. If you rob um, um, a bank that is insured by the FDIC, that's a federal crime. And the feds had mandatory minimums, uh, whereas, I mean, where if you're found guilty, you're automatically gone for a long time. 
So I called him up and told him, hey, if you transfer jurisdiction to the military, we don't have mandatory minimums uh, for this kind of crime. There are some we do, but not for this kind of crime. And I convinced them to turn the jurisdiction over to the military. And then I worked out a sweet deal where he didn't lose any rank. He didn't lose his retirement. He didn't have to go to jail. No reduct. I mean, no, no fine, no forfeitures, nothing. He had a conviction, but he got to go home. And, and how did he respond? Well, he was still having some difficulties. He, he never told me thank you, but that's okay. You know, I wouldn't necessarily, it was the right thing to do. Um, but he never said thanks. In fact, he was just angry at the world. He was angry at me. I don't even know. You, he, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I get, I get being in a really bad place, especially during the surge. Uh, but man, if, I wonder if he ever thinks about that. Assuming that he's still yeah, with us. I, I wonder know. if he ever is just like, I wonder where that lawyer's at. I wonder what he's doing. I, I think about him often, wondering how he's doing emotionally. I, I hope he has um, gotten the help that he needs. That that wasn't my job um, to get him help. That was other persons in the military. And I, as I understand it, they were pursuing help for him. But I often think about him, wonder how he's doing. But I, but I don't just, think about it in the sense that, hey, that son of a gun still owes me a Christmas yeah. card or something. Yeah. I, just, well, I feel like he does. But I, I think it's it's... When I think about that story, I think about like the um, the Three Stooges type humor, where they're like just he's standing there with his bag of money, got a money symbol on it, and a gun, and just the cop cars just yeah. Keystone Cops. Yeah. Any other time in history when a man robs a bank, he's going away for a long time, and he's definitely not retaining the full honors that he had getting out. So did a solid, I guess. Yeah. And well, just did did your job, I I guess, but. It worked it's out. Pretty good job. It worked out. All right. So now that you know my father, he did pick the book. Like he's already mentioned, I did renege on on the choice of bourbons, and I I kind of threw him for a loop on that one, and we'll we'll detail that in a moment. But uh, the book is Bluegrass Conspiracy, or the Bluegrass Conspiracy, by Sally Denton, who was um, there in Lexington during the time of all these these occurrences. So the book surrounds um, a part of Kentucky history that I had no clue was there. Um, you just don't, when you think Kentucky, and this is for anyone within or without a Kentucky, you don't think about some of these things that these guys were able to accomplish. And it sounds like I'm in awe, and, it, and I think that's because I am. Yeah, and that's something that jumped out at me. You sort of alluded to it just now, I, I was living there during this time. I remember hearing some names. The, the company, as they called it in this book, came into full operation and existence in 1977. And I remember what I was doing in 1977. I remember my dad um, saying, hey, the Kentucky Wildcats are ranked number one this year. And I said, what's that? And he had to explain to me what ranked number one means. So you, you sort of are lost in your own little world uh, and without, and you're oblivious to whatever's going on around you. Um, but when you hear these familiar names like Anita Madden, I remember her putting on derby parties and hearing about her. John Way Brown, I mean, we anybody from Kentucky's heard about him. So it's uh, um, it's weird to know all of this is swirling around you and, and you're completely uh, oblivious. The intrigue throughout the book was, was very interesting to me because, again, everyone thinks Kentucky is a sleepy backwater area. Um, and... And the connections here from this book 
spread across the world. Um, one of the main characters, Drew Thornton, and characters being of history, um, I want to introduce him first and foremost because the book kind of revolves around him, Drew Thornton. And um, I guess Sally Denton, the author, also tries to have this counterbalance with um, a man named Ralph Ross. But I'll introduce Drew Thor Thornton first. <clears throat> Drew Thornton, um, son of some of the Lexington elite, um, born of horse racing stock, uh, privileged youth sent to a military academy early on to um, be made into a man, I guess was the, the quotation that was used as far as what his dad was thinking. Um, enlisted in the army, had a, had a brief stint as a paratrooper in the army. Yeah, that's, as we said earlier, the reason I was interested in the book is both the connection to Kentucky. Anytime you find somebody, especially a character in a book that you have a connection with, um, you know, you want to learn more about him and, as you said, he was he was in the eighty second. I was in the eighty second. He got his undergraduate degree in law enforcement from Eastern Kentucky University. I did the same thing. He had mm -hmm. a law degree. Had a law degree. So I found all kind of things uh, about him uh, that that you know I could see myself. I, I don't sell cocaine, so that's where some of the similarities stop. Uh, yeah. Stop. But um, reading about characters that you can relate to is is always interesting. Yeah. So he he did this stint. In 82nd, and then he, uh, was it lawyer first and then police officer, or police officer then lawyer? Because while these are very, all three of these jobs are very respectable, it's, those three jobs are not what made him famous. Alongside him, or I guess one of his peers, is a, a man named Ralph, Ralph Ross, who's in the state police, which is a completely different entity from the, the city police that uh, Drew's in. And Ralph Ross begins seeing some connections between that elite that we mentioned, Anita Madden, um, John Y. Brown, James Lambert, which was John Y. Brown's best friend and um, had a very colorful history of his own. He saw those connections from those elite through the police force just by being observant. These police officers were hanging around um, these people's homes a little bit too much for police officers to be doing such. And so he started getting tipped off to what looked like corruption in the Lexington police. And it all always came back to Drew Thornton. Um, Drew Thornton kind of styled himself as a... Um, a very, like, the, the in international man of intrigue is kind of how I felt Drew Thornton saw himself. Yeah, yeah. He was a thrill seeker, and he liked to portray himself as a thrill seeker. And, and that's what... Uh, the majority of the book is, or these two contrasting personalities that sort of play off one another, that each serving as a nemesis for the other. Yeah, so there's Drew Thornton on the, the fast life, um, jet-setting style, son of the rich elite, um, who got bored and started um, working with a childhood friend named Brad Bryant. And Brad Bryant was also from that same elite crowd, um, he had been in and out of Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise, which was actually um, run by John Y. Brown, the future governor at, at one point. And so there's all these inter interminglings between the elite and these police officers, and, and it, it all centers on Drew Thornton and um, Brad Bryant. And these two childhood friends decided to pursue that, that fast lifestyle even, even harder, um, and they started something called The Company. And initially, the company is chiefly consumed by smuggling marijuana into the United States from abroad. 
and then it slowly moves into cocaine. And then over the years, and this is over about five years, Brad Bryan is continuing to make connections with other drug, drug smugglers throughout the country, including, including the Chagra brothers in, in Texas, which are um, very well-connected brothers that have a lot of connections in Colombia, and they also do this gun smuggling. Um, and that's where things start getting a little bit weird because Brad Bryant has a cousin, former Air Force um, officer who was working at China Lake Naval Base, which is a, a research facility, and they were s- smuggling like night vision optics to South America. And it gets out of hand for Drew Thornton, and at this point the two kind of split because... Yeah, there's a lot going on with with uh, Bradley Bryant. You, you sometimes wonder, is he a drug smuggler? Is he a gun runner? Is he an international spy? Is he just in the personal protection business? It, he's, he's got a lot of irons in the fire. So it, for that reason, it's it's hard to, um, uh, I, I guess, label him or put him in a in, in one box. But he played a little more fast and loose. Uh, he, he was much more of a risk taker in terms of uh, who he's willing to trust um, um, and the, I guess, openness of his operation, whereas... As you said, Drew Thornton decided to cut away from him because Drew was the opposite. He's got a very tight circle, uh, tight-lipped, and, and not wanting to draw attention to himself. Yeah, and so not wanting to draw attention to yourself actually leads to, at the time that the split kind of occurred, the company, due to some federal, or I guess based off some federal reports, the company had grown to 300 employees, and, and some of those reports labeled it as a, a billion-dollar enterprise. Yeah, and when we say employees, we're not just talking about people who are unloading uh, weed off of a truck. We're talking about bankers and lawyers and accountants, polygraphers, because they wanted to make sure that they had no moles. Yeah. You had to routine. It's kind of like being in the CIA. You had to routinely submit to a polygraph examination. Um, so they not only truck drivers, but they had pilots and they had, you know, farmers that were allowing their fields to be used as a landing strip. It's, yeah. It was pretty expansive. Yeah, they. I mean, they even even bought. A, I think it was like a. I want to say three hundred acre, maybe four hundred acre plot of land, in rural Kentucky called the Triad. And at some points around nineteen eighty, when they were valued at this one billion, and and where there started to be some federal interest in the group, there was rumor that they were training, like a paramilitary force there, um, just based off of the amount of. Gunshots neighbors heard and yeah and, and, and I guess allegations that because as I said earlier they could have been in the drug running business as well maybe training Central American um, rebels or or fighters or whatever so that they had, had a lot of things going on it's it's hard to know what's what's legend and what's fact and that's that's another thing is that uh, Sally Denton the author was here during this whole time. She worked at WKYT uh, there in Lexington, and they were reporting when, or she was reporting, when some of these people started meeting their maker. Um, and one of the, the main turning points, I think, aside from the fact that these, uh, it started to get reported at China Lake that some of these optics were being, or going missing, another thing occurred. Judge Wood, um, a federal judge in, was it Texas? or San Antonio, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was assassinated. Which I mean, when you have a federal judge getting assassinated, it starts it's, it draws a little bit of attention. I'm talking FBI, Customs, DEA, ATF, and then state and local police across. 
it mobilizes the resources of the resources of the entire federal government. There, there's no one who is not um, springing into action um, when, whenever you assassinate a, a federal judge. So uh, that's if you're not wanting to draw attention to your operation, that's probably the last thing you'd want to do. Yeah. So at this point, Drew Thornton is already split from the company, and, and Brad Bryant. Uh, is still running that fast and loose style. He's been making tons of money, of course, and so it kind of emboldens him, so he only continues to get worse. And in about, I think it was 78 or 79, Brad Bryant was accosted by an undercover DEA agent um, when he was trying to sell him 804 pounds of weed and with the promise that he could read 20,000 more pounds uh, very soon, within weeks. And uh, this was because it, it looked like he got tipped off by another drug runner. Um, I'm going to call him Mr. Walker, but there's not much more to be known about Mr. Walker because they, while he was getting accosted, they had actually already been tipped off, they being the company, and had arranged for Mr. Walker to be killed. And his, his body was actually being fished out of a Florida swamp while Brad Bryant was being um, placed in jail. So the, the, it was very clear throughout that the connections didn't stop with the private organizations, but it was with the public federal organizations as well. Um, somehow Brad Bryant and Drew Thornton had set up those, those connections with a lot of government entities that Drew Thornton maybe was able to utilize later on, but Brad Bryant was definitely utilizing based off of some of that information. But everything, even, even for the most careful of criminals, comes to an end. Um, Drew Thornton was continuing to try to run a, uh, an operation of his own, albeit much smaller and much tighter knit, and somehow still information gets leaked. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it's probably because of his connections to the, to the company. You can't sever all connections. So eventually the, the police officers across the country were being tipped off to an operation that Drew Thornton was running, and he got caught up to in Louisiana. He suspected something wrong was happening and fled, and was actually tracked down to Southern Pines Regional Airport. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. yeah, it's like um, within an hour of where we're at, I would say even closer. Even closer, just outside of the Fort Bragg uh, uh, installation boundary, I think. Yeah, and here's I just wanted to read this off just because this was <laughs> impressive and somewhat comical to me. At the time of his arrest, Drew Thornton was found to have a twenty two caliber handgun, nunchucks, a bulletproof vest, and a parachute. And then a book... Um, with all kinds, so it had his codes um, along with some undecipherable things, but then it had contact information for several DEA agents, government officials, and military generals in Bolivia, Brazil, Costa Rica, Colombia, Ecuador, Haiti, Mexico, Paraguay, Peru, and Panama. So about a third of South America he had, he had his hands in. He even had the number for an officer in the Narcotics Bureau from Hong Kong. Yeah, he was, he was well connected, and uh, that's part of what the book gets into. He, his connections were so extensive um, that, that there are allegations that he had some involve, involvement with intelligence agencies when, within the federal government, or otherwise he wouldn't have had access to these people, these numbers, and equipment such as night optics. So uh, a lot of um, potential ties to, to a very dark spy-led world. Yeah, so his his bond was placed at one million um, for that, and uh, it's not mentioned much 
what comes of that. I don't think much comes of it, honestly. He he, he kind of continues operating. And this is how the book started off. And then it, it's, it started off in, what was that, 85? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember what happened to him. Uh, he, he went to jail for four months, went to prison for four months. Okay. As a yeah. result of that. You- I, it's... In this book, there's so much going on at once, um, and, and we'll talk about the style of writing here in a second, but there's so many characters that, and everyone's getting arrested because everyone has to pay the piper eventually, um, that it's hard to keep track of how many uh, indictments there were. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he, I guess, yeah, he did serve four months for smuggling um, thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of weed into America. But it it gets to the point where uh, Ralph Ross, the guy that's been investigating Drew Thornton for 15 years at this point, 16 years, uh, he receives a, a package from an anonymous source that has some credence to it, I think, and, and started getting really interesting for me. Um, and it detailed that it was fairly common for the CIA to, to operate this way, to have an overt agent, um, which we haven't mentioned him yet, but he was a DEA official um, who was able to use his DEA connections to engage with some people that Drew Thornton, Bradley Bryant, otherwise would not have been able to. So there was the overt oper- operator, there was the covert operator, which they believe was Drew Thornton, and then there was the assets, the people that where the rubber met the road. And that was the Bradley Bryants. And I mean, there's a myriad of other characters in this book. Henry Vance, or Vance, yeah, Bonnie, Kelly, I mean, hundreds of people. Um, And so Ralph Ross begins the question, is, is it possible that what Bradley Bryant said when he was arrested, what Drew Thornton has said in the past with being a good guy and not a bad guy, is it, is it possible that they have been working for the CIA this whole time? And I think it's plausible. It is. And, and the casual observer would say, why on earth would the CIA want to be involved in the drug business? And it, it, from, an, from the standpoint of drugs, there, there is no interest. But those assets that you're talking about, those assets in Central America, have intelligence that have none outside of the drug world. They have intel relating to national security matters in their country. And Central America, especially during the, during the 80s, uh, was a big concern of ours. That's, um, I mean, that's part of the the Iran Contra deal revolved around with Central America. Um, so the CIA using an already pre existing criminal enterprise to get information that they would use for purposes of national security is entirely plausible. Whether it's actually happening in this case, we have no way of knowing, but it's it's plausible. That's they're in the business of intelligence gathering, and you get it wherever you can. Yeah, I mean, in this company. Uh, they had they already had the infrastructure to to accomplish those things, so it was too easy to exchange some illicit drugs with uh, some night optics in order to get some information from yeah. from people that were on the ground. So, I and it still hasn't been that has not been unearthed, and I don't think it ever would be unearthed. Um, but the way this book started was actually with the death of Drew Thornton, and <laughs> I. I'll talk about Drew Thornton. You talk about the bear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so Drew Thornton, um, early one morning in 80, 85, I think it was springtime, a man called the police and claimed, actually he called his sisters first, 
and then the police. I remember the date. It was September 11th. Very was it? memorable date. Yeah, September 11th, 85. Okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so 85, a man claims that there's a body in his front yard, in the driveway of his front yard. And it turns out to be Drew Thornton. And with Drew Thornton is 75 pounds of raw cocaine, which it amounted to... 15 million. Yeah, 15 million. And furthermore, the investigation that obviously followed this, um, that was one of 13 bags. So it, it, it equated to somewhere around $160, $175 million worth of cocaine strewn across the, the southeast portion of the United States. Yeah, and there's a reason it was strewn throughout the southeastern portion of the yeah. United States because they didn't want to fly their drugs directly to Miami or Fort Lauderdale, wherever uh, their wholesale distributor was located, because the feds and the local authorities had figured out to look out for those things. So they would fly farther north, unload somewhere, put it on trucks, and then take it down south again. But in this particular instance, he was dropping them at certain locations that... Um, uh, he, he would drop, I don't know, six or eight different duffel bags full of cocaine that was attached to parachutes, and then he'd have ground crews pick them up along the way. Now, one of these, apparently, uh, some of them were found by forest rangers. You had a bunch of hikers that were suddenly interested in hiking yeah. uh, once, <laughs> once it started being just, uh, advertised on the news. Appalachian Trail became a hot spot. Right. Um, but one particular bag, I guess, was found by a bear, and that bear... Um, um, as bears are wont to do, started eating cocaine, I guess. Yeah, I, it's, it's just one of the, their natural instincts, I so guess. So they found this dead bear. He had overdosed, uh, and that became a, a relatively famous bear. Um, some people called it the cocaine bear. Some people call it Pablo Escobar. Uh, <laughs> and uh, several, well, I don't know about several, but a handful of famous characters have owned that bear because later on the taxidermist stuffed it, and I think whaling... Not Waylon Jennings. Well, Waylon Jennings yeah, Waylon. was one of the people that bought yeah. him. Yeah, Waylon Jennings had him for a while, and that's certainly a conversation piece to keep in your living yeah. room, right? What's that bear doing there with it? I'm going to throw a picture up right here eyes. because it's they dressed it pretty funny when they uh, displayed him. They actually initially displayed it in some um, museum, and he got stolen from there, and then Waylon Jennings bought him from a pawn shop. So like, he's been around the world a few times. Where is he? He's at some mall. Yeah, something called the Fun Mall. I don't oh. know if that's, I don't know what that is exactly. That sounds freaky. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, uh, and some of the bags, of course, were actually found by the ground crew, but, but that, uh, that spawned a lot of interest throughout the southeastern United States, and, and especially Kentucky, since it's one of Kentucky's own um, yeah. who, who had, had been found plummeted to the earth. And this guy, as we said, is a character. He had on, he was dressed for battle in that he had on fatigues, but he was wearing Gucci loafers. Gucci so. loafers, man. You got to keep it fresh. So he, <laughs> you know, and then he had a duffel bag with 75 pounds of cocaine strapped to him and, uh, and along with some survival gear and, and uh, some telephone numbers and things like that. And, and they, he had a couple, he liked to carry certain, I guess, motivational sayings. I, drew, I wrote one of them down, but on his body, when they found him, um, while you're looking for that, I was actually going to mention uh, there is actually some questions surrounding whether he died because of several different factors. Was he there were in the autopsy report? There are some of the injuries 
just don't make sense for what actually happened to him. He was far too broken, which you would expect if a man's falling from an airplane to hit the ground and somehow not have that many injuries is kind of counterintuitive. But apparently he had even more injuries than what was suspected for that, according to Ralph Ross. So there's some conjecture that he was killed and made to look like it was an accident. Um, yeah, I, I can understand why somebody might think that. I I personally don't subscribe to Ralph Ross' beliefs because I've seen, um, unfortunately, the results of, of people who uh, uh, have died under similar circumstances. And, and the injuries are extensive and sometimes difficult to explain. Um, yeah. But... Um, so I found while you were talking about that, I found the saying. This was found on his body. Uh, on the plains of hesitation lie the blackened bodies of countless millions who, at the dawn of victory, sat down to rest and resting, died. So that was one of his self motivational things that he carried around. It you know, don't quit, keep pushing forward. Uh, you're going to own the world, kind of thing. The moment you take a breath, you're going to lose. He definitely had a delusion of grandeur. I mean, he he started off. I think. I mean, being the child of very rich horse racing parents, um, I don't know. I, I just felt like he, from the very beginning, he thought he was destined for, and I mean, he ended up doing some, I won't call him great, but some incredible things, um, almost unbelievable amounts of life lived in the 40, I think 40 years that he was alive. Yeah, and that's, that's part of what makes a book like this fun to read, is the adventure. He was certainly a thrill seeker, and we like to read it about adventure. And you and I briefly touched on that subject yesterday, I think. Um, we've always been interested in stories of adventure. And you look in the Bible, you know, Cain and Abel, and, um, uh, Jacob and Esau, or Sarah and, and Hagar. There's always, the drama is has always piqued our interest, right up through Shakespeare, that you know, people making decisions for selfish reasons or for adventure-type reasons. Mm -hmm. And so that's always fun to read. And But you're right. The book started and ended with him plummeting to the earth, uh, and that certainly provides a colorful bookend um, to, his, to his life, I guess. Another thing that I thought while reading this, when I discovered that the author was one of those investigative reporters at WKYT during this time, I felt like this was an insurance policy because she knew so much. Because one thing that we didn't mention, that there were a lot of young women dying that were in, involved with this company. And so I'm wondering, and a lot of people that were opposed to the company ended up dying. I, 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 we're, we're glossing over a lot just in the interest of brevity. But I, I wondered that maybe if her publishing this book was a way of, I don't know, protecting herself, because there are definitely some things left out yeah. And I wonder if this was like a a, sh a warning shot. Like, yeah. Hey, I I know a lot, and a lot of people know what I know, you know, and I can I can publish it to the press and end your whole operation. Is what I felt like was happening because this this was uh, published like less than five years after Drew Thornton died, um, and it w was not left with a full resolution as to what was what was going on. There was an open ended ending. Yeah, she was getting it from a lot of different directions. It, she wasn't just getting it from the dark underbelly of the uh, the drug smuggling world. She was getting it from the Lexingtonian elite mm -hmm. because working there at WKYT, and that apparently was one of the primary m news outlets, media outlets, that was reporting on this kind of thing. But they were also getting it from the elite because they were touching on some names that they weren't supposed to touch for, yeah. touch on, the John Y. Browns of the world and the Jimmy Lamberts and the, what's his name, Henry Vance? 
I think it's Henry Vance. Yeah. So um, they were getting it not only from the criminal element, but also from the ruling element uh, around those times. So it, it was it was um, tough reporting to be done, I imagine. So before we give our ratings, our individual ratings, there were there were two things I wanted to do. I wanted to analyze her style because we we both had some bones to pick. And then I wanted to analyze a couple of different themes or, or thoughts that I had while reading the book that I think that you may help to answer. So the first thing is Sally Denton's style. I know you've got an opinion. I, I do. It, as you pointed out, she was a reporter, and I think she took her story um, and plugged that story, cut it in half, and I think she put the first half in the beginning of the book and the second half of her original story at the end of the book, and she had a a gaping hole in the middle that she needed to fill. And and I say this, I cannot write a book. I, I hate to criticize somebody for doing something I myself could never do. But I'm asking you to do it. Yeah, well. <laughs> blame but, it on me. I'll that, take the blame. I feel like the gap uh, in between, the period in between, was filled with information we just didn't need. I mean, when again, I'm not going to propose that anybody edit the Bible. It's the Word of God. But if you when, when you get into Leviticus and Numbers, it starts to get a little dry. That's uh, the, the part where, and Henry begat Stephen, and Stephen begat, that's the part that he's referencing. Yeah, so um, so I, I hate to criticize her, for, but there was a lot in there that we didn't need to know. There, was, there were two pages where there's just listings of telephone messages that were left. And I understand why she didn't, needed to mention them, but I don't know if you needed to list them. There was another time, there was, a, there was one sentence that was over 300 words long, um, and I... It was it was her like waxing poetic on how Drew Thornton felt about himself. Yeah, it, yeah. it could have easily been a list, but but yeah, waxing poetic about what was in his own head, I, I think was a good way to put it. But um, when I start counting words, you've you've lost <laughs> your goal in getting yeah, me to read your story. Halfway through the sentence, you've lost me once I start counting words. Yeah, yeah. So style, I think the content, like you said, because. The first 100 pages and the last, like, 75, 50, 75 were really interesting, and, and I think there's more to the story um, that maybe she didn't know or wasn't willing to put out. I'm not sure what, but, like, this, this, the roots to this story runs deep, and it's deeper than maybe anyone will ever know. Now, I, you and I mentioned uh, earlier, before we got started here, that they're making a movie about a portion of this, the cocaine bear The cocaine portion. bear portion. Pablo Escobar. Uh, it's supposed to be coming out next year, so hopefully... Uh, be on the lookout. Yeah, hopefully the, the movie uh, keeps your attention throughout. I don't... Yeah, I don't think they'll, they'll prescribe to the Sally Denton style. Um, okay, and that leads to themes or, or things that I, I thought may... Um, I don't know. It, it could be something that other people have thought at different times that I thought about while reading this book. And um, the first one was, and you kind of alluded to this earlier with the adventure, uh, is why is it that humans are so enamored by people that live outside the law? And I honestly think it's it's just the, the awe that people feel from seeing someone make it big without the support of society. Yeah, I, there, there are two parts there. Number one is the thrill, the adrenaline rush that... You can see somebody who does it has to be, on some level, pretty brave, or brazen at least, a risk taker. 
But on the other hand, yeah. and you sort of alluded to it, is there's a bit of a Robin Hood element to it whenever somebody, and I know Andrew Thornton came from the elite, but, but he sort of stepped away from that once he become a, became a cop. But when you see somebody who uh, maybe is not part of the ruling class, who's still reaching out and grabbing theirs, um, it, not distributing it like Robin Hood did, I guess, but, yeah. but, but going out and seizing theirs, even though it wasn't given to them as a birthright, there's, there's something attractive about that. Yeah. And maybe in some fashion provides a little hope for somebody who's like, man, maybe, maybe mine's still out there. Maybe someday, I don't know that I'm going to run cocaine, but maybe I can seize... I can have this beach house villa, you know, right. in, in Florida, or I can I can have these travels, these exciting it because, and and that's why I was the whole time I was wondering and and only briefly was um, the cop Ralph Ross wondering, could this actually be connected to like some CIA government shadowy, the, the shadows of the the world type of operation and and just the mystery and intrigue of that is what makes me think. Um, that's so exciting is that there's a possibility that he, he was, he was doing, he was the good guy. Yeah. Um, undou- undoubtedly, probably not. I would, I would assume just based off of everything that happened and all the killings and maybe just for my own mental well being that he was definitely re- living on the wrong side of the law and just doing his own thing and greed was what was powering him. But then there's also the the thought that maybe... He was executing at the behest of the CIA or something. They are the best books, or the books we like best, I should say, are the ones that make us think. And and this this is one that makes you think about those possibilities. One thing that I think you will be able to lend a lot of information on, and this is something that I think anyone that watches like Forensic Files or, or anything of that nature will have this question. And it's, why does it take so long for cases to be tried and judged and passed on people that are, even once they're found guilty, it takes a while for that, that, why does it take so long? Why is the process, the legal system, is it because it's become, because in, in dad's office, there's a little, um, it's a, I don't remember the comic book strip, but it's a picture of two men sitting in the library of, I don't know, Congress or something. And it's, it's books, floor to ceiling, as far as the eye can see. And the comment on it is to think that we start with the ten, we started with the Ten Commandments. Yeah, is it is it because the system has become too complex, or is it because you guys are just laser focused on making sure you do it the right way, or is it become too bureaucratic? What do you think? Well, you, you're right. Um, justice is a very slow moving train, um, but that train is a very complex and intricate machine and each part of that train is there to protect somebody's rights because previously those rights had been trampled on in some fashion mm-hmm. it had been proven that that there had been a grave injustice because this particular rule wasn't in place so those rules that make this train such a slow moving apparatus are necessary to make sure and the system's not perfect but it's definitely the best one going to make sure um, that the innocent don't suffer. Um, so it, it's going to take a long time. It especially takes a long time for appeals because nobody's, I mean, the appellate court isn't in a rush. They're not under, um, in most instances, it depends on what the, the issue is, but they're not under 
uh, a time sensitive deadline kind of thing. But but all of those rules, we have to focus on the rules um, because if we don't, somebody is, is going to suffer. And that's justice, right? Uh, the guilty shall not escape and the innocent shall not suffer. That's justice, is to make sure those two things stay balanced. Guilt doesn't escape, innocent doesn't, innocence doesn't suffer. So it's it's not a perfect science. That's the reason yeah. I call it the practice of law. Um, you have to let the process play out to make sure that you're arriving at the correct This might result. be a, an, an unanswerable follow-up question. I thought that one was pretty unanswerable. Yeah. Huh? Uh, do you think that because we, we make so sure that we don't, and I mean, there are, albeit very rare instances of people being wrongly accused or convicted is more the right term that I'm looking for, but do you think that same system um, allows too many people that are actually guilty free because of the bureaucracy? Yeah, it, it, it's going to happen. As I said, it's not a perfect system. It, it's going to happen that the guilty sometimes get away with it. But but two things on that uh, in terms of providing you an answer to the unanswerable is, number one, I feel like people eventually get theirs. I, I, think, I think karma usually catches up. Mm -hmm. um, but secondly, and more importantly in my mind, is I envision if one of my kids were... Um, accused of something i want every damn one of those rules to be in place yeah to make sure that my kid is protected so it might be right that the, there might be a guilty person out there that gets away occasionally but that's what it takes to make sure that me and mine are properly protected yeah. then i wonder if people really. think about that side of things often like what if it's my kid that's convicted um because you just see what the news tells you and they usually paint it as a, a foregone conclusion well, as, as another, opposed to how it should work. That's another thing is you start to look at things through a different lens as you get older, as you have kids, as you take different jobs. Uh, it's easy for somebody on the news to state an opinion. It's easy for a prosecutor to prosecute because you're a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. It's easy when you're a defense attorney to say, hey, hey, there's more to the story because that's your job is to is to illustrate the rest of the story. But mm -hmm. But when you're in a position where you have to where you don't have marching orders. Not everything looks like a hammer. Not everything should look like a, um, a nail, rather. Not everything should look like a nail. Um, you're looking at things through a different lens, and it's, it's, it's weird. It's, but that's, that's how I put it into context. If it was my kid, yeah. that, what would I want to happen? Okay. How's that for an answer? That's pretty good yeah. for the unanswerable. All right. So now to our rating. I'm going to let you rate first. Out of five stars... What do you think? Yeah, well, I'm a tough critic to begin with, whether it's books or movies or whatever. I'm going to give it a three, and here's the reason I give it a three. Um, I I enjoyed reading it, but that's because of the connections I had to the characters, to the places, to the names. Um, somebody who didn't have those connections, I don't know that they would have gotten the same enjoyment out of it, so I'm afraid if I give it more than three, um, expectations are going to be too high. Okay, so... Three traditionally means that it's worth the buy for me. Would you say that it's worth the buy? Yeah, three. I mean, it was like, it was, what, 16 bucks used? So, it, yeah. It's worth the read, I guess, the time that you spend reading it. A three, I would consider it's worth me reading it, but not necessarily worth me recommending it to somebody else. Okay. Because I don't want to be on the hook for, hey, you told me this is a good book. Okay. 
using using that logic, then I'm going to give it a three and a half. Because I, I probably, if someone asked me, hey, I, I'm in a nonfiction, I'm into uh, forensic files, like I mentioned, or, or those types of shows, I would give them I would give them this recommendation. Yeah, let me let me amend what I said. I would recommend it to somebody from Kentucky because there's so many things. I mean, they mentioned like specific places yeah. that I I've been to, Lansdowne uh, Mall, right, or New Circle, or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Hamburg Place is a shopping center now. Apparently, that used to be part of Eden Madden, Anita Madden's uh, farm. So, somebody I from Kentucky, I would recommend it uh, if you weren't from Kentucky. Um, I would say, you know, if you need to pass time while riding on an airplane, yeah, go ahead and read it. But otherwise, <laughs> I would say so. I would say that if you're into like the the nonfiction or or the criminal side of things, as far as watching those types of shows, then I would give it. I would say yes, you should read it. Um, but a quick update, real quick, on some of the characters. Henry Vance, that we mentioned a few times, died last year after a long and happy life working in insurance. Um, he was the one that supplied a gun for someone to be murdered in, in think, Florida. Correct me. I think he was like the chief of staff to the Speaker of the House in the Kentucky At legislature. At the time. So yeah. heavily connected in politics. Uh, Jimmy Lambert, James Lambert, the best friend of the governor at the time, only served 15 months' time. Uh, he was initially charged for 59, intent, or 59 counts of intent to distribute cocaine. He entered a plea deal for one charge of it, so he, he barely over a year time. Um, after a cursory research on, online, I found that he's, he's still alive. He lives in Lexington. Jimmy Lambert is? Jimmy Lambert's still alive. Anita Madden, um, that socialite that you've mentioned a few times, she's, there were a bunch of things that she did that were sus in her time. Um, she died at 85, she's, so she's gone now. But in the obituaries, I, I always read the obituaries, and they're just painted as this, like, philanthropic, philanthropic, just martyrs of all things good. Um, you just said something that struck me. I've what? got to interject. What's that? Everything that we're saying here, this is me playing the lawyer, all right? Everything that we're saying here is just our opinion based upon what we read in this one book. We don't know anything, because these people that you're mentioning right now like to sue other people. We don't know the truth or oh, the falsity gosh. behind any of this stuff alleged in this book. We're just reading it and making a podcast. We know nothing personally. Yeah. All right. I would like finished. Yeah. Make sure you don't cut that out. Yeah, I'm not going to cut it out. This is this is for if we get litigated. Um, I'm not popular enough to be litigated, guys. But we'll we'll see. Um, no no mention of Ralph Ross or was it Don Powers? Yeah, so Don Powers we didn't mention, but he was the loyal associate to Ralph Ross um, throughout his entire tenure. The two cops that were deeply involved in this throughout. Yeah, they even started a business um, that the book mentions. I can't find any anything on the business, so I don't know what happened with them. Uh, and then John Y. Brown, after um, dropping his bid for president. Um, after that, because he w he did have pretty high aspirations for president, but due to some of the things that happened to James Lambert and um, some of his other close constituents, he just continued to open up chicken franchises yeah. and, and become filthy, filthy rich. So John Y. Brown had had the whole world ahead of, but but he but he he earned this. I, I read in there that when he was in high school, he was selling vacuum cleaners in his. Yeah, he was a great salesman. Yeah, And when he was in college, he was selling encyclopedias, and apparently what he would do is when the newspaper would come out with birth announcements, he would go to their house and say, what are your plans for the education of your new child? 
look at all these encyclopedias. And he also did some statistical analysis, analysis too, because he started sending more people to the poorer regions because it was more likely that the, the parents of poor families would purchase these encyclopedias. He wanted their kids to live better than to have something more than they did. So, yeah, so, he was smart. Yeah, he was a. I think he he was a millionaire while he was still in his twenties. Yeah. Um, I'm not there yet. So, but he's flashy, married a former Miss America. So yeah. Yeah. Good life. He, he was the one that, uh, the, the guy that's so popular on the KFC, the Colonel, he purchased KFC from that Colonel. And the Colonel actually said that he had, he'd been kind of cornered out of, of the franchise, even though he didn't, he, he, he claims that he was browbeaten out. Little known fact about Colonel Sanders, he also practiced law at one time, but had to stop because he kept getting in fights with his clients in the courtroom. Fist fights. <laughs> Colonel Sanders. Kentucky, you know? All right. Don't litigate us. Um, <laughs> we know nothing. We, know, we, just, we just claim to be We're just a couple of fellas just having a good time. All right. Uh, at that, and, and Mr. Lambert, if you do end up seeing this, um, I'd love to have a bourbon with you, man. I, I would love to have a drink with Jimmy Lambert. He seems like an interesting person. He, w- he was in the courtroom wearing sunglasses and cowboy boots. That's my kind of guy. So... On to the bourbon, though. Um, quickly, I'm going to... This is what I did um, that Dad's a little bit upset about. So initially, we were going to compare Basil Hayden with Old Granddad because they're made from the, the same mash bill, sour mash bill, but one's clearly more expensive than the other by about $25. And we were going to have a comparison there. You can still do that later. We like, could. Maybe I could do a cameo, come in long enough just to take yeah, those two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but they weren't in the store. Well, there was a, there was a whole handle of Basil Hayden, but I thought that was too involved. Um, and so we're moving on to two different bourbons. One of them being from Kentucky, one of them being from outside of Kentucky. And we're going to test to see if dad can choose the one his heart desires or so I did this last week. You haven't seen the, the podcast yet. Or not last week, but two weeks ago. And I tested myself and I failed. I don't like this. I market Kentucky bourbon because that is my obligation because I am a Kentuckian. And when you are from Kentucky, you market what is important to the state, whether it's thoroughbreds, whether it's basketball, whether it's bourbon. Cocaine. Oh. And you don't market somebody else's product so i think it's unfair that what if i happen to pick that i, then, I have so few are you to begin are you with, more are, those are you more interested in truth mr jag officer uh, no you bur- can't handle the truth yeah, bourbon is, you want to hit me with that no i don't <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're gonna test him um if he fails then i mean maybe we can blame it on the fact that we picked a poor kentucky bourbon to compare it which you're going to be surprised if you say that. Uh, I'm going to throw up right now. Everything that I believe in life could fall apart if I pick up a Kentucky bourbon, bourbon right here. that is not made in Kentucky and, and like it. Unknowingly, I think this is... From outside Kentucky bourbon right here. So just ahead of time, I'm going to put those pictures right here. And we're going to test, we're going to test the old man on, on uh, which one's which. I'll also throw up the picture as I bring the glasses in. Shouldn't it? The one that you have is it's the, the same, same as, that I have. Yeah, but you okay? But you. So I'm the only one that which. I'm the only one that knows which is which of the two of us. 
Okay, so this glass, there's two different glasses for him. This one is the first cab glass. You might be able to see it. It's the uh, from his time at Fort Hood. Um, and the next one is going to be the 82nd Airborne, which is from the time that he spent at Fort Bragg. Which interesting fact about those two posts is that they might be renamed soon based off of public sentiment. Yeah, I'm not against that. I'm not against it being renamed. Neither I, am I. I think uh, Fort Hood should be named after Roy Benavidez, who was a Medal of Honor winner. Um, and I think he was from Texas. And um, I think Fort Bragg should be renamed after Alvin York, who was a Medal of Honor winner from Tennessee, but he was part of the 82nd. When he got that Medal of when Honor? When he got that Medal of Honor uh, in France in World War One. I. I don't, I mean, it's just a name. All right, we're going to try this first bourbon. Short finish, very short finish. I'm not a connoisseur of bourbon in the sense that I'm able to give you those scientific feedback of short, what'd you say, short finish, those notes? So I'll tell you, I'll explain that. The, The finish is how long that flavor or the effects of that stay with you. Okay, that makes sense. But I just drink what makes me feel good. It's all about emotion for me. It's not about science. It's about emotion. And he's and, about to get real emotional and I'm if he chooses wrong. I'm emotionally attached to Kentucky bourbon. Oh, it's got a fire in my belly, it's too. a long relationship. Yeah. Long and storied tradition. All right. All right. I, I think I need, and I noticed you already drank all of yours. I haven't drank all of mine yet. I, I'm, I feel con- the need to compare and contrast. Okay. That's, that's- all right, so this is the second one that Dad's examining right now. I think right now he's looking at, at what kind of residue it leaves behind. Yeah, I'm trying to see if there's a difference between the film that each one of them leaves. Some of the films left are clear and silky. Some are a little more um, muddled. Not muddled, that's not the right word. Just sugary, maybe. I'm kind of glad that we took a little bit of time this morning, um, and I'm kind of glad that we started drinking bourbon afternoon, because I'm not ready to admit that I'm drinking bourbon in the a.m., even if it is a Saturday. That depends on when they're watching this podcast. I'm saying, yeah. Right, that. I don't like this. I don't like this whole setup. (laughs) (laughs) I needed to be more sure when I tasted the second one, and I am not. I don't like this at all. The setup. Right. What I'd like you to do first, before you start guessing which one's which, yep. is rating them. Yeah, well, that, and again, I don't have all this um, just based, funny, don't, you don't have to give any stuff to say yeah, about it. Yeah. That one jumped into my nose much quicker. Okay. I could feel it in my nose. I could feel the burn. Uh, and I'm not against a burn. I mean, that, the, the first drink might burn a little, but the second drink changes your life. It's a magical elixir. While you, because I know this, you re, you're going to agonize over this for a couple of minutes. While you're agonizing and thinking over this, why don't you pitch to um, the viewers bourbon? Yeah. yeah. So 
I'm not going to encourage you to start drinking if you're a non-drinker. This is only to the people who already drink alcohol. And I want to point out to you the error of your ways because this is the most uniquely American drink that you could possibly think of as item number one. And if you're, if you're, uh, consider yourself American, then you, you're supposed to be drinking it. But, but number two, it is classy. Um, you drink bourbon out of a glass. You don't drink it out of a beer can or... Styrofoam cup. Yeah. Um, it's, it's classy. I mean, one of Andrew Thornton's aliases was Andrew Bourbon. He's buried in Bourbon County. Um, what D.B. Cooper. You know the story of D.B. Cooper, the guy mm -hmm. that jumped out of the airplane? This is like the Kentucky version of him and less successful. But if you look at D.B. Cooper, he ordered a bourbon before he jumped out into the infamy. Yeah. Um, so bourbon is, is, is a very classy drink. Um, but be sure that you're drinking Kentucky bourbon instead of something like Rod Gut Tennessee whiskey. Because if you go into a restaurant and you ask a waitress, waitress, uh, could you tell me which bourbon you have? As soon as she says Jack Daniels, you, you know that she you doesn't know there. what she's talking about. Yeah. Jack Daniels is advertised on tank tops and trucker hats. Kentucky bourbon, good Kentucky bourbon, is not. Um, as I said, it's a magical elixir. There was a line in this book that said, when the magic of the bourbon wore off. There's no such thing. The magic never wears off. <laughs> there was. <laughs> unless you're, I do remember that line. Unless, unless you're submitting to a roadside DUI test. that The magic might, might wear off then. Yeah, but, immediately. But it fixes almost anything. It makes me taller. It makes me smarter. It makes me better looking. It makes me funnier. You have to agree. Uh, you're just lying to yourself if you don't agree that this makes me funnier. Um, so given all of the positive benefits. The bourbon's barely hit his li lips, and he's already, the animation goes up It changes my attitude as soon as I smell it. It is not, a, I, I said it's not a scientific thing with me. It's emotional. When I smell it, it changes my whole outlook. Mm -hmm. It's an emotion. So, and, and, and you might think, I said a minute ago, the first drink might burn your throat, throat and it might be, there might be those of you out there that think, well, that's why I don't drink it, it's too harsh. Um, but I would imagine, especially those of you who are coffee drinkers, the first time you drink coffee, you're like, ugh. Mm -hmm. it's, but you learn to like it, you fought through it. I'm encouraging you, if you drink, fight through it. This is worth it. Wine, wine wasn't invented here. Tequila wasn't, vodka wasn't, beer wasn't. All those things came from other places. If you want to be... Truly American and classy, this is what you need to be drinking if you're a drinker. I think that's a good sales pitch. But you, Honestly, mean, listen, if there's anyone connected to the bourbon world and, and they need a spokesperson, you know how Dos Equis was so successful with that most interesting a man most interesting man alive commercial? Yeah. You you've got the making you've got the trappings for well, that. It's it's all about relationships. Life is about relationships and and I have a relate I have a relationship with one of these. I just don't know which one. <laughs> All right. So you, you, you started off by mentioning when you smelled this yeah, one. That one jumped up in my nose when I took a drink okay, of so it. Okay. It so it, it, it had a, a this, it was more aromatic. Yeah. This one, this one was a little smoother. And it could be because I said the first drink burns a little and the second drink changes your life. It gets smoother. It could be that if I drank this one first, I would have been saying this Very one true. jumped up in my Very nose. Very true. I'm going to say the Kentucky bourbon is the second one you brought out, the one in the 82nd Airborne Division. Before I tell you the answer, I want you to rate both of them, though. 
Well, because, again, on a one to five, is that the way it goes? Yeah, so one to five, just like the book. All right. I, I'm given this so, one. And the same thing, like three, you'd recommend, but don't seek it out. Oh, well, Four. No, those definitions don't apply here, because I'm always going to recommend bourbon. <laughs> Even bourbon from outside of Kentucky? I, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. So, so three being that if someone were like, I want to try a new bourbon, do you recommend this? Right. Well, then this Four is being seek this out five being never try anything else okay all right neither one of them is a five but i'm going to tell you the rating i give is a conditional rating okay with the assumption that it is from kentucky and if i find out that it's not then then the rating will change because i don't want to recommend it so the first one that you gave me that's in the first cab glass i'm going to give that a three and i'm going to say that's not kentucky bourbon okay um the next one that you gave me in the 82nd airborne division glass uh, i'm going to give that a four and say that is a kentucky bourbon that's a little smoother okay it didn't again it didn't jump out at me or didn't grab a hold of my nostrils the way the first one did but it could just been the the order that i drank them but but when i look you said at it the, was smoother what do you so are you talking about like when you first drink it it is much more agreeable to my palate it mm, my taste buds invite this one. <laughs> that's not science. That's emotion. This is to, pure emotion. To linger. Right now. It is. It, it, Woodford Reserve. Straight out of Kentucky. Which is one of my four staples that I should know how it tastes. You should. You ready? Yeah. Oh, good lord. Your initial reaction, your initial reaction was right. Um, and we're going to do the toast. You want to do it, Dad? You want to leave the toast? Oh, sure. Up to it, down to it, damn the man who can't do it. I'm tall bourbon. Thank you, guys. Love you all.